We are preaching through Mark. That's what's going on right now. Uh, if you were here last week, then you, you probably heard me uh, talking about Jesus entering Jerusalem. And the, the, he got this king's welcome, and there was this expectation that when a new ruler comes to town, he's going to enter into the temple and he's going to offer a sacrifice. But he didn't do that, right? Instead, Jesus goes into town and he enters the temple. And when he gets there, he cleans house. He declares judgment. And we learned that when that happened, the chief priests, this is verse 18 of, of Mark 11, the chief priests and the scribes heard what he was saying, heard, saw what they were doing, and they were seeking a way to destroy him because they feared him. That's where we are today. We are now entering this week and next, this section of Mark where Jesus is facing some challenges. Challenges from his enemies. His different enemies are coming together they're aligning and they are trying to trap him. They are trying to bring him down. And the first thing they, they, they address, they come to him, they ask him, whose authority, by whose authority are you doing these things? That is the issue at hand. And I'm glad that we get to talk about that today. This is a, actually a wonderful opportunity for us because their challenges and their doubts about the authority of Jesus are our challenges and our doubts about the authority of Jesus. These concerns that, that they had 2,000 years ago didn't stop with them. In fact, they, they live on in our hearts, in each and every one of us. Each and every one of us has this deep-seated opposition and resistance to the authority of Jesus in our life. And it's something all of us have to wrestle with. Something each of us needs to face, each of us needs to figure out. We need to figure it out in the, in the grand scheme when we're just trying to uh, decide if we want to follow Christ. When we're trying to decide if, if we, want, we, we want to have faith in what he says. But we also need to figure it out as followers of Christ. We always need to check our hearts on the question of Christ's authority. We need to wrestle with it daily as we deal with our, our constant tendency to go our own way, to choose our own path instead of his, to doubt that his authority is right. And so that's what we're gonna do this morning. That's what we're gonna look at. We are gonna consider our reaction to Jesus's authority. And we're gonna look at three things. First, we're gonna see our natural response to Christ's authority. Then we are gonna see what Jesus's invitation and his command to us, what it actually is, and then we're going to see what his plan is to bring it in line. So what's our natural response? What is Jesus actually asking of us? And then what is his plan to bring us in line? All right. So our response, that's, that's where we're starting. You know, uh, if you've read the Bible before, if you've read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those, those books tell the story of Jesus's life and his teaching. And you find that Jesus often taught in parables. Parables, these simple stories that he used to make some larger point. And oftentimes when he taught in parables, those parables were confusing. They weren't easy to understand. You might find yourself reading through them and say, well, I don't, I don't know what that means at all. And that's kind of the point. Jesus taught in a veiled way. You even read and know that sometimes when he would teach, the disciples would be confused. The people who were closest to him, who heard his teaching all the time, they'd have to pull him aside and say, what was that all about? Can you explain it to it? 
He taught that way on purpose. He taught that way intentionally. But this parable that we come to today, in, in your Bibles it probably says the parable of the tenants. It's not one of those confusing parables. This parable has a pretty obvious meaning. This parable was taught in order to be understood. And we find out it was understood. Verse 12 tells us, They were seeking to arrest him, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. When he, when those people, that's the scribes and the priests. The chief priests and the scribes, those enemies of Jesus. As soon as he said this parable, they figured out, Hey, you're, you're talking about us and we don't like it. But maybe we don't pick it up quite as easily as they did. As you were listening to Carell read it, maybe some of that stuff went over your head. Because there is a lot of Old Testament stuff in there uh, that you might not have picked up on immediately. So let me just break it down really quickly so we know exactly what we're talking about. Jesus, he tells this story, and it is the story of a man who plants a vineyard. It tells us, he tells us exactly how he sets up this vineyard and then hires people to come and work in it. It's not a coincidence that he goes through these little steps of how the vineyard gets set up, that he plants the vineyard, that he builds the tower in the vineyard. Jesus was actually drawing from a very famous Old Testament passage. It's the other one that Carell read, Isaiah chapter 5. The story of the Lord's vineyard. He was drawing on that idea because he wanted the, the teachers who knew the Bible really well to start thinking about that passage and what it meant. It's not exactly the same. The Isaiah passage is a, a passage about uh, the grapes. The man plants a vineyard and the problem is that the grapes, they're, they're wild. This passage, the problem is not the grapes, it's the tenants. It's the people working the grapes. So they knew that the grapes... In that story from Isaiah, they, that was talking about the people of Israel. And the tenants, in this story, that's talking about the leaders of Israel. It's talking about the people who oversee the grapes. It's talking about the people in charge. And in this story, the man sets up the vineyard, he puts these people in charge, and then he sends his servant when it's harvest time. He sends his servant to come and collect the grapes. But instead, they beat him. And then they send another servant. And instead, they beat him, and they shame him, and they send him back. And then it says they send a third servant, and with that third servant, they kill him. And he continues to send other servants, and some they beat, and some they abuse, and some they kill. And then it tells us, finally, the Lord of this vineyard sends his own son, and he says, they will respect my son. But of course they don't. They beat him, and they kill him. And after Jesus tells that story, he, he wraps it up by saying uh, this reminder from Psalm 18. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. They were on to what he was saying, and here's what he was saying. He's saying, you are the builders that are rejecting the cornerstone, and I am the cornerstone. You're the builders, and you're rejecting me. I'm the cornerstone. He says, you are the workers in the vineyard. You're plotting against me. I'm the son. And soon you're going to get God's wrath 
because of it. And they understand. And sure enough, it plays out instantly, right? As soon as he finishes speaking, they start to find out a way that they can have him arrested. It's, it's almost ironic how quickly it starts to take place as soon as he says it. But before we go any further, let's kind of pause there. And let's think about their reaction to this parable. Because I think it's easy for us to make a caricature of these, these chief priests and the scribes when we read the Bible. You know, we think of them as like these evil guys, you know, with the, like twisting their mustaches and like doing this. That's what evil people do, right? They put, anyway, they're plotting against Jesus. We're going to kill him. But that's not what they were doing. They, I want you to understand that these people are no different from us. We, just like them, we are hardwired to reject the claim of Christ's authority over us. We're just like those tenants in the vineyard. We resent the idea that we are under obligation to God. We want to be the ones calling the shots. We want to be the ones who are in charge. This parable, it reflects what we're all experiencing. Especially for Christians. You know, I, I want to make sure, Christians, we do this. We can profess a robust theology. We might genuinely proclaim that Jesus is Lord. We might talk about our willingness. We might sing about our desire to surrender everything to Him. But... When God actually comes and makes demands on our lives. When the Son actually comes to collect. When Christ's commands threaten what we really want. How we want to live. What we want to do with our lives. When obedience to the Word of God becomes a threat to something that we hold dear. Whether it's our comfort or our, our wallets or our worldview, our instinct is not to submit. You see that? Our instinct is to do what these guys did. It's to destroy. It's to rationalize our behavior. It's to reject His command. It's to assert our own independence. It's to assert our own lordship, our own control over our lives. Or maybe if you're not a Christian yet, maybe if you're someone in this room who's considering Christianity right now, uh, you are probably like most people. Probably like most people considering faith. You're paying lip service to this idea of being open-minded about God, about exploring different options, about seeking out the truth. But what Scripture is saying here is, it is no coincidence that all your life up to this point you have avoided faith in Christ. This is telling us that all of us, instinctively, we reject the Lordship of Christ. We don't want it. We aren't neutral. We aren't just surveying the options. Colossians chapter 1, when Paul is describing the human race, he says, You who were once alienated and hostile in mind. That's how we are. We are hostile towards God. One pastor put it this way. He said, our fallen nature is such that we are not simply indifferent to God. We hate God. God is our mortal enemy. And fallen human beings will stop at nothing 
in their attempts to throw off the sovereignty of the Creator. He goes on to say that, in fact, if God himself came to earth today, in 2018, and we were given the power to destroy him, he surely would be put to death. And that's not just theory. That happened. (laughs) That's history. And that's what I want us to see in this first passage. Just like these leaders in Israel, our instinctive response to Jesus' claim on our lives is to kill him. But why? What exactly is it that's so offensive? What is it that, that bothers us so much? Well, this is the second point I want to make. I want to talk about his invitation and his command. I want to talk about what Jesus is really saying here. The thing that led these leaders to arrest Jesus, the thing that led them to eventually kill him was not a misunderstanding. It was the opposite of a misunderstanding. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. That was the problem. They understood what maybe a lot of the crowds didn't quite understand yet. They knew that he was claiming lordship over their lives and they wanted him dead. The rest of the crowd in Jerusalem, they're not there. We just read the triumphal entry last week. You remember people gave him, they were shouting, they were praising him, they were laying their coats down on the road, they're having a big party as he comes into Jerusalem. They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they will get to where the Pharisees are. Within just a few days of this account, that same crowd that was praising him last week will be shouting crucify him just alongside of the Pharisees. And those are really the only valid responses to Jesus. Those are the only two options. You either praise him, you say, save us, or you crucify him. There's no in-between. If you think that Jesus is just some pretty cool guy, (laughs) you don't get it. If you don't have a strong reaction to him, you don't understand who he is. Jesus is not on par with Oprah. He, he's not some like popular, inspirational figure, you know, a generally likable guy who occasionally makes some good speeches. That's not who Jesus is. And that brings us to this second scene, verse 13. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. I can't remember what page this was, but it's Mark chapter 12, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, like Steve said, take one of those with you. Verse 13, it says, the leaders, the leaders that he was just talking to, the leaders, the the chief priests and the scribes, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, Jesus, he sees right through this immediately. Um, There are some places in Scripture where we find that Jesus was incredibly perceptive. That he sees right through into people's hearts and they can't even understand it. I don't think this is one of those places. I think this was a fairly obvious trap. These two groups that it talks about, you maybe haven't heard of them before, but Pharisees and Herodians, they didn't get along. They weren't friends. The Pharisees were people who meticulously kept the law. 
They followed it and they built their life around keeping it. And the Rodians, they were people who supported these puppet rulers of the Roman government called the Herods. And the, the, the Herods were like the most lackadaisical about the laws you could possibly be. They were Jewish really in name only. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're natural enemies. They have no love for one another. And so they are the ones who come up to Jesus and, and try to pose this question. You know, it'd be like you know, if, if Harry Potter and Voldemort come up to ask you a question, right? If Batman and the Joker come up together to, to talk to you, you'd be like, something's weird here. <laughs> this isn't normally the way things go down. And here's what they say. Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but you teach truly the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, Jesus sees right through this. He sees through their flattery. And as ridiculous as their approach might be, as, as thinly veiled as the trap might seem, the response that Jesus gives them is genuinely astonishing. His answer to this trap is a world-changing few sentences. He says, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Instead of wrapping himself up in their political battle, instead of getting caught in this theological trap they were trying to set, instead he took this moment to teach us all something fundamental about who he was and what he had come to do. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now you could use that verse and you could go back and try to decipher some teaching that Jesus wants to give us about how Christians should relate to government and stuff like that. And, and maybe there's some valid place to do that, but that's really not the point. The render to Caesar stuff is important, but it's not the point. The point is render to God the things that are God's. Render to God the things that are God's. That's Jesus's message. And that is the common denominator between both of these stories. That's why Mark, he puts them back to back, the vineyard thing, and then this challenge to Jesus. The son coming to collect the harvest. And now here, this command to give to God, give back to God the things that are God's. You see the connection? You see the message? It's this, Jesus has come to collect. Jesus has come to collect. And here he takes this coin, this little simple object, and he says, look at this. Look at the image on it. This thing clearly belongs to Caesar. So give it back to him. And give back to God what belongs to him. And what belongs to him. 
us, right? All of us. Scripture says that human beings are marked with the image of God. That is what sets us apart from all the rest of creation. That's what distinguishes us from everything else in this universe. Genesis chapter 1, it's on the first page of your Bibles. God created man in his own, what? Image. Image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The image of God, that's what distinguishes us. That's what makes us different. That's what sets us apart. Uh, Sets us apart from, from everything else. Thomas Nagel is a uh, atheist philosopher. Um, he is like 80 years old now, so I think he's emeritus. But he was at, at NYU. And um, even he admits that this whole image of God thing is hard to get around. He was reviewing a, a Christian philosophy book. And here's what he had to say about it. As an atheist, he said... I say this as someone who cannot possibly imagine believing in the God of the Bible. But even those like me who cannot accept the existence of God should admit that the deepest problem with a naturalist view of the world is how can it account for the appearance of conscious beings like ourselves capable of discovering the laws of the universe and understanding the universe that they govern. He goes on to say, lots of atheists have tried to talk about this. They haven't ignored the problem, but so far, even with the aid of every theory, they have not proposed a credible solution. This great philosopher who's won all the awards, he says, we don't have an explanation. But Jesus says it's common sense. As clearly as the image on this coin shows you it belongs to Caesar, the image of God in you proves that you belong to God. Therefore, render yourself. Render. I thought a lot about that word this week, render. We don't use that word in English very much. But there was a good reason why the translators chose it. It's, it's probably the best option they had. Uh, because some translations say give to God, but that's really not what it means. It really means render. It means give back. It means return. It carries with it this idea that, that our lives do not really belong to us. They aren't rightfully ours. It's connected to that other word that you're probably more familiar with, surrender. Handing over control, giving up. That's a pretty marvelous thing to teach with one poem and a trick question. Render yourself. I mean, that's the message. That is the invitation. That is the call of Jesus Christ. That is the summation of of his invitation in the gospel. Render yourself, all of yourself, to him. This call, it's it's all-encompassing. 
It is a call to relinquish control of your life, to submit to his authority in every conceivable way. It's a call for you, very plainly, to to give up on calling the shots and to return to what you were created for. To return to a relationship with your Heavenly Father. To return to a life under His rule instead of yours. To following His commands instead of your own instincts. And that is difficult to hear. Those leaders were right because this invitation is painful and it is relentless. I used to... uh, for a very brief period of time, I worked for a campus ministry. And one of the things we would do was try to share the gospel and evangelize people. And we used these little gospel tracts to do that. And uh, there's a famous one called the Four Spiritual Laws. If you've ever heard of it, maybe you know. The, the first law in the Four Spiritual Laws is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And, you know, that's, that's true. But it is also misleading. God indeed has a wonderful plan. But it often does not feel wonderful when you're going through it. It usually feels like death. It usually feels like dying. That's why the leaders reacted so strongly. They got it. They knew that if they believed Jesus was who he said he was, it would cost them everything. They would lose their identity as religious experts. They would lose their their control over the people. If they submitted to him, their very identity would be gone. And they could not bear the pain of that. They couldn't handle the cost. So instead of rendering their lives to him, they kill him. So they can be the ones in charge. And you do the same thing. When Jesus says, render your life, you need to know he is claiming every bit of your life. He requires you to give it all. Not just your spirituality. Okay? Not just your Sunday mornings. But everything. He wants your jobs. He wants your political views. He wants your relationships. He wants your sex life. He wants your money. He wants your rightness about the way the world works. His invitation is to give up authority over all those things and instead trust him. How on earth can anyone do that? It's not just scary for the Pharisees. It's scary for me. It's hard to do. Well, the last thing I want to mention here is he has a plan for this. He has an answer to that question. He has a plan to bring your life in line with this command. I want to be sensitive here. Maybe you're feeling this this week. I'm talking kind of abstractly. I I don't have a lot of great illustrations to explain what I'm trying to say. But maybe you know. Maybe there is a pressure point in your life right now, and you know exactly what God is asking you to give up. 
Maybe you know exactly where God is calling you to surrender your own authority and trust him. Maybe it's something you believe is fundamental to who you are, like the Pharisees. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a point of view that you have. Well, Jesus has come to collect. Do you find yourself struggling? Do you find yourself struggling to do it? To say, no, this is too important. I can't can't give this up. I can't possibly let go of this thing. It might kill me. Well, I want to tell you today, you can surrender that thing, whatever it is. In fact, you must surrender that thing because no one's life can belong to Jesus just a little bit. You either let him rule and reign or you take the throne for yourself. You either give him everything or you kill him in your hearts and you become your own Lord. And what will the Lord of the harvest do when he comes and he finds you in his place? What's the answer? Jesus tells us the answer, right? What will the Lord of the harvest do when he returns and finds you in his place? It says he will destroy. (laughs) That is the fate of our rebellious hearts. That is what we rightfully deserve. That is what we get for for claiming God's place and tearing this world apart with our sin and our selfishness and our self-righteousness. But you know, even here in this story, there's good news. (laughs) Even in the midst of that terrifying sentence, the gospel is at work. Do you see it? Can you, can you find it here? Let me ask you this. Why is Jesus even talking to these guys? He knows what they're going to do. The chapter right before this, he said it. Chapter 10, verse 33. The chief priests and the scribes, he says, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. He knows what's coming. So why is he even there? Why is he in Jerusalem? Why is he wasting his breath talking to these stubborn people? Because in entering this argument, he is taking a step towards their redemption. In entering this argument, he is taking a step for us towards the cross. You see, the hard reality is these guys aren't the the only rebels in the story, right? We are the rebels. We are the stubborn ones. We are the ones who are trying to call the shots. And we know it doesn't work, right? We know what our lives are like. Anxious, full of fear, unfulfilled. We know calling the shots doesn't work, and yet, for some reason, over and over and over again, we push him off the throne and we claim it for ourselves. We are all guilty. But Jesus came for the guilty. 
On the cross, the innocent and obedient son stood in our place. You see, if we only had the parable of the vineyard, if that's all we knew of Jesus, then we would miss a big part. But that parable tells us that Jesus came when, 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 when God sent the Son, He didn't simply send Him to collect the debt. He sent Him to pay the debt. Amen. He sent Him to go to the cross and take the wrath that we deserved. And He freed us from it. On the cross, Christ, he paid our penalty. That's one way to think about what he did with our sin. But another way to think about it is that he freed us from sin's power. He made it possible so that that by his spirit, we could be fundamentally transformed. That our hearts could long to be ruled by him. That our hearts could again choose to serve him. That we can finally see through the lies of our own sovereignty and believe the truth of his promise. And folks, today, you know, he invites you right now. The true Lord of the harvest, the king whose very image is imprinted upon you, the one who you were made for, the one who your life will never be complete without him. He invites you to turn right now. To turn from your false claims of ownership on your life and to stop trying to act like you're in charge. To stop living like a slave and claiming freedom. Instead, he invites you to submit to him, to surrender to him and be free. He says, render. Render. Surrender your life to me. And you can trust me. Because I have surrendered my life for you. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this is uh, too much for us to bear sometimes. To think of the mess that we've made of things. But I'm grateful for your wisdom. And I'm grateful for your power. That you save us in our stubbornness and our selfishness. That you redeem us and save us from your wrath. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is struggling to let go. I pray that you would give them the faith right now to believe that you will free them through their surrender. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.